It was more than once when I was a young girl, I remember saying, this would be a great day for God to come. Today, right now, would be a great day for God to come. You feel that way this morning, back row? Now, you might think you would make those statements on a day when there's crisis, right? Would just come now and rescue me. But when I was a young girl growing up in the church, I remember the days I wish God would come were the days I was in gathering, for example. This would be a good day for God to come as I stand at the door with the can in my hand. Come now, God. Or with Sabbath school and Pathfinders singing at the nursing home. Oh, this would be a good time for God to come. We're all clean. We're doing what God wants us to do. We're spreading cheer. This would be a great day for God to come. I remember thinking about this as a child. And I also remember thinking on days when my brother was especially bratty, what a great day for God to come. Now, while he's pulling my hair, well, he took a bite out of my back one day. Why can't God come now? He'll get what he deserves. I'll get what I deserve. <laughs> oh, what a great day for God to come. I had those thoughts growing up. Have you had those thoughts too? Would you open a Bible? Matthew 25 this morning. What a great day for God to come. We're going to begin reading verse 31, but before we begin reading... I want you to notice what comes before, what comes before Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 24 comes before Matthew 25. Look over. If you have those chapter headings in your Bible, those little titles for the different stories, would you just scan over chapter 24? Look at the kinds of things Matthew is talking about in chapter 24, oftentimes called the, um, an eschatological chapter or the little apocalypse chapter. Look over the titles of what you see there in Matthew chapter 24, the prediction of the destruction of the temple, signs before the end of the time, persecutions that are foretold, desolating of this sacrilege, false Christs and false prophets, the coming of the Son of Man, the time of the coming, the parable of the fig tree. Take heed and watch, that parable ends. Now chapter 25, parable of the flood and the parable of the good servant and the, the wicked servant, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents. And we come to this last one we'll read together today, entitled the parable of last judgment, or your Bible may say the sheep and the goats. Look over those and catch a flavor of what Matthew is doing two whole chapters about watchfulness and preparedness and attentiveness being ready. We have parables that remind us we'll not know the hour when God returns. Parables that remind us be ready whenever that is. Parables that remind us, quite frankly, parables that feel like they've slipped off the pages of the Old Testament because buried within these parables um, is some of the most violent language any of the gospel writers use. Now remember, here's a community that's lost its temple. By the time Matthew is written, they've lost their temple. And God hasn't come, and the end of the world hasn't come, and their personal timetables are all scrambled. And so there's anxiety. And you read it on the pages of these chapters in Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew in particular has this hell and damnation theology in his stories. Fires of hell. It's a phrase he's not afraid to use. 
It's a common Aramaic phrase known at that time to mean equivalent to the day of judgment, the end of time, the last thing. Matthew's not shy about the phrase. Twenty times in your two New Testament, you'll have a sentence that includes the words hellfire, gnashing of teeth, outer realm, of, or darkness. Twenty times you'll have a sentence with all those components. Thirteen of the times Matthew will use them. In many of them in those two chapters that I just referred to, Matthew will use phrases like what you see on the screen. You'll be thrown into the outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throw them into the furnace of fire. I particularly like this one. Cut him in pieces. Put him with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds a little Old Testament, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Matthew isn't afraid of this language. He's a lot like the one preacher in a poem of Emily Dickinson, a character she writes about who seems to be especially fond of the topic of perdition. Matthew seems to be at ease with it as well. Lovely words for our gentle Jesus in the New Testament. What are we going to do with these words? What are we going to do with this language this morning? Remember, if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father for a few weeks now. Where is God in these parables? Keep that in mind as you open your Bible now to Matthew 25, and we'll begin with verse 31. Words familiar. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand, a position of honor, and the goats on his left hand, a position of dishonor. You just pause right there because it's a very familiar task to peasants, but not so familiar to you and I, that at the end of the day we'd bring our cattle in and separate them into the right and the left, into the better and, and the, the less valuable, into those that need extra care and those who can sort of fend for themselves. For the readers of Matthew's time, they understand the context now of the story. They know about shepherding sheep and goats. But would you just notice there that two things happened at the beginning of the story. It was a son of man who came, and the nations were separated. That's people. And then all of a sudden, this became like separating cattle or animals. And now it's going to slip back into um, uh, people conversation. That's interesting to note. Started out with people, talking about cattle. Now we're going back to people. The king will say to those on his right, he doesn't talk to goats. He's talking to people. Come, you are blessed of my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. It's a good day for God to come, isn't it? Come now, God, taking care of the sick and the naked. And the hungry. Verse 37, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger in, in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, these harsh words, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil 
and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick and in prison? When did we see you like that and not help you? Not a good day for you to come. Not on our best behavior if we missed it. When? When? We didn't notice. He will reply, verse 45, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. What is the parable? Now following chapters 24 and 25 that I referenced earlier, what in the world does the parable say about the identity of our God? If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. Remember, for six or seven weeks now, what can we learn about God from this? If we understand sheep and goats to be symbolic language in our story, metaphors, then we we ought to be consistent with our interpretation. If it's sheep and goats, a word picture to bring us into the conversation to help understand, if they're not real sheep and goats, it's not real fire either, friends. We have the authors in Scripture painting word pictures to show us how terrible it is to be separating from, uh, separated from the Father, and they grab for languages and images and metaphors that, that they understand that are terrible and destructive and full of doom, but... but it's not real fire that they're talking about. It, it's overwhelming, it's frustrating, it's uncontrollable sadness, it's weeping, and yes, it's eternal consequences. But this is not a passage about an eternal destruction that goes on and on and on. And the church must want to say, Amen. Maybe I didn't say it clearly. It is not a passage about a fire and a destruction and a punishment that goes on and on and on. God does not take care, part in that kind of eternal torture. And it is one of the most beautiful statements Adventist Christians can make about God. I don't know if we all can appreciate how unique we are from the rest of Christianity. One of the most beautiful things you and I can say about our God is that our God doesn't torture people. Our God doesn't kill people. Our God doesn't know anything about taking a match and lighting a fire to the feet of unrepentant children. We don't have that kind of a picture of God in the Adventist church. I'm afraid there's a little confusion about that. And Ellen White is not always helpful. Sometimes she is. Please don't email me this week about Ellen White and hell. I've read those comments too. I'm simply saying to you, the Bible does not teach that we have a God who's capable of doing that. It's the first thing we learn from the parable. God doesn't torture people. The Bible writers are using images that make sense to them for right outside the city of Jerusalem. They know about the valley where a fire burns people, where people are sent. That's an outer realm where there's gnashing of teeth. It stands for separation, and it's painful. I think there's another distinction we ought to draw when we read these parables about judgment, conversations about judgment in the Scripture. I think we get confused uh, as humans who live in this world 
with the idea of judgment and punishment. For rarely in our world do we ever see a judgment made without a punishment also being given. Rarely is there ever a judgment, which is another word for an assessment, a statement of how it really is. It's sort of a state of the union. Rarely do we see a judgment that there is not also some penalty or punishment attached. I haven't seen Barry Bond's picture all week, but that this scales wasn't somehow imposed behind his head as he's been indicted on these charges. I saw it again yesterday on CNN. Barry Bonds superimposed on the scale system like this. That's the legal system in our country. We, we operate under that assumption. If there's going to be a judgment, there will be a penalty. So judgment means trouble. Judgment is, is a problem for us. Now judgment in the Bible is a good thing. And I'm not sure we've grasped that either. Judgment is a good thing. It tells us how things really are, what we're working with, what the challenge is, what the problem is, what the diagnosis is. We've had some sick people in our congregation the last few weeks. And it's interesting to listen to physicians and healthcare providers when they don't know what's, what the diagnosis is, everyone's frightened. But as soon as there's judgment, as soon as there's an assessment about what, what you have, what I have, they know how to treat it. Everyone's eager for a judgment when we get sick. It's like that in the Bible, in the sick world. Judgment is good news. Judgment is telling you and I, it's God saying, this is the problem. But it doesn't always come with a penalty assessed to you and I that is equal to something terrible and horrible. Judgment and penalty or judgment and some kind of price are not the same thing. Judgment usually, always in the Bible, represented as very good news. Can't wait for God to come and judge the earth because that means it's almost over. Does a loving God exercise judgment? Yes. Does a loving God exercise judgment at the end, at a final judgment? Yes. Does a loving God submit to the test of being judged? Yes. And we're not talking about th that this morning. But does God allow God's self to be judged by the onlooking universe if God's ways are just and good and true? Yes. Although that's not the topic of this parable, I believe. Does a loving God give out eternal torture? No. No. I believe that it doesn't occur to many of us from the earliest, when the Bible stories are written down to today, that a judge, that the judge that we read about in the Bible could judge differently than any other judge we've ever seen or known. That God sets God's own rules for how judgment goes. I learned about judging from watching Perry Mason. Well, there's really authoritative source. My father was a Perry Mason addict. My uncle too. Most of us learn about judgment from either being in court or from watching judges function. But God is a judge of another kind. And if sin is a relational problem, then judgment is also a relational conversation. The cure for sin is more relationship, not necessarily more penalty and punishment. Relationships are governed by the very love that defines them. We've talked a lot about this in the last six weeks. The kind of love that is our God. An other-centered, self-sacrificing, agape love, which I've been saying. I think in this final Matthew 25 parable, Matthew's the only one who writes about it, by the way. Mark, Luke, John, don't write this story of the separation of the sheep and the goats. 
But I believe when Matthew writes it, Matthew is resting on something a little different that probably has less to do with you and I and more to do about God and the kind of God and the kind of kingdom this God has. So it's less about scaring us to death. I had a deacon in the church when I was growing up who scared us to death. So good at it. Stood at the back door with just a glance, with his arms across his chest. He could scare every kid into church and sitting in our pews. And I believe that sometimes the Christian church is running scared and afraid and anxious. And it only takes a little thing. Some of you got the email this week that's kept us busy. There's a little email that was generated last week that came in the, with a subject line from the Calamasa Church, and it announced a meeting that was supposed to, to happen November 14 and 15, supposedly with officials from the Vatican and from representatives from the government and the religious right. And in this secret meeting, they were going to be discussing the Sunday laws and the Seventh Amendment. And, and look out, the, the uh, email went out saying, look out, probation will close. Everyone get ready from the Calamasa Seventh-day Adventist Church came this message. Thank you, whoever did that. I have, we have talked to conference presidents, union conference presidents, people across the states. Last week, 7.30, that phone in my office rang from a pastor in New York who wanted to know before he went to the pulpit if it's really true what the Calamasa Church is preaching. So I have figured out how to get everyone's attention from now on. I'm just going to say Sunday laws, probation is closing, and everyone will show up. Fear and anxiety. The world is driven that way. But when we move back and watch our God full of self-sacrificing, other-centered love, which cannot be coercive, it can also not be driven by fear. So you and I cannot be reading parables and language that will scare us to death into following God. Let me be as clear as I can this morning. I think the scriptures are full of people. The scriptures themselves witness to people like us, like Ellen White, like centuries of Christians who are busy wrestling with God, trying to understand this God also. People who are wrestling to understand if God is really as good as I'm been saying the last six weeks? Or is God a little more like the metaphors and the language and the ideas expressed sometimes in the Bible that aren't so appealing to you and I? People wrestle with it, and you can see the tension even in our Bible. The Bible testifies to that. So people grab for the only language they know. Well, God, it must be like going to that fire outside of Jerusalem. It must be like gnashing of teeth. It must like be being get cut up in little tiny pieces. That must what it be like. It must be like that to be judged by this God. The Bible witnesses to people wrestling with God. What, am I safe in the hands of this God? And I don't believe what we're reading in Matthew 25 in the end is a story about judgment really for you and I at all. I believe it's a story about a benevolent judge. I believe it's a story not about hellfire, not about eternal consequences necessarily. It's not a story about the favored in God's kingdom. It's not a story about those who are shunned. It's a parable that carries a prophetic challenge to us to care about what God cares about. You see in the book of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25, they've gone through all of these challenging conversations, and finally Matthew rests on this one idea. A God who has a kingdom 
that takes care of people. It's a kingdom that represents the God itself, the judge itself. So the parable is a, a prophetic challenge for us to be consumed with what God is consumed with, to be driven by this, to re rearrange our lives about it, to rethink our organizations and our institutions and our missions and our visions around this idea to, let, to, to take this God and, and work with this God, let this God work out the eternal consequences. God is the judge. It is not my worry. What is my worry is to care about what God cares about. And I think that's what the parable teaches us. So that when God comes, God will find a people who say, well, when did I feed you and clothe you? I, I didn't even know when that happened. Yes, that's, that's what the people will be like when they're consumed with what consumes God. Do you know that Jesus rarely ever talks about a fate somewhere beyond this world, but spends an awful lot of time describing the realities of this world transformed, being concerned with what concerns God. It's a judgment conversation of a different kind. This judgment conversation sets God's character straight. It puts evil in its right place in the world. It calls you and I to our appropriate place in the kingdom. It's, it's not a great question to ask, what's going to happen to me? It's a better question to ask, what does God care about? to catch that vision of what God cares about and let God take care of eternal rewards and eternal consequences. This is my Father's world, we read. The earth and heaven, let it be one. That's what God cares about. So last weekend when the pastoral staff went to San Diego, we got to take our families and have a few days away on staff retreat and I thank the Finance Committee for beginning to allocate some funds towards this. It's a wonderful time. I can't tell you all the things I learned about my colleagues and their families. It's a secret. I haven't asked permission yet. But I can tell you when we, we were thinking about what to do while we were down in San Diego, I sent an email out to, to the guys and said, what do you think the families would like to do? In San Diego, we can go to a Chargers game. We can go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was my number one pick. We can... I didn't get all the votes, by the way. We can uh, go to the beach. We can do the water. We can whatever. What, what do you all want to do? And people were sending their responses back in. And back to me came a response from someone I didn't ask who had a great idea of what we should do with our time in San Diego. We should go to Balboa Park and feed the hungry people. Mom. And I said, looked at my daughter. Who, 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 who asked you? Who asked you? We should do what? We're on vacation. We're on retreat. We are getting away from all of that work, Amanda. We don't want to go to San Diego and worry about hungry people. We worry about people all week. This is a vacation, a retreat. And she just kept hounding me. I'm the pastor, by the way. I'm the one that gets paid to study the Bible. And an 18-year-old kept saying to me, Mom, we need to go to the, far, the park and feed the hungry people. And my protest turned into, where are you going to find hungry people? How, how do you know they're going to be there? You can't just drive. Balboa Park is huge. You don't just drive up there and see people. Mom, what are you worrying about? There's always hungry people in the park. And what I was wrestling against was I have to go to my colleagues and say, how does this sound for a vacation? 
we're going to take food down there, and we're going to go to the park, and we're going to make sandwiches, and we're going to spend a couple hours on our retreat time. How absurd of me. What a great time for God to come. And so my car was packed, and we drove to San Diego with food for 35 people, and we unloaded in Balboa Park and made our peanut butter sandwiches and, and gave the heels to Pastor Dustin because you don't give heels to the hungry, my daughter says. You give them the good bread. And we began our search around the park. Hard to find, by the way, the hungry people. They are not all gathered. Ask Lyle, Ken, Dan, Janice, Isaac, Grace, Dustin, all of us in different cars trying to caravan around the park finding hungry people. We ended up downtown. Someone directed us. If you go downtown, they're laying all up and down the street, and indeed, we turned downtown, and there were more hungry people than we had lunches. And I could hear this parable. What a great time for God to come. God is coming while we're passing out food. What a great time for God to come. I'm not even worried because I'm consumed with what God cares about right now. I'm on God's agenda right now. What a great time for God to come. To be consumed with what consumes the judge. What a way to relieve our anxiety, church. What a way to accomplish God's agenda in the world. Yeah, so I say, today is a good day for God to come.